Could you open up to Luke chapter 11? Afton, how are you doing this morning? Doing good? Good. I saw your smile. I said, how are you? And you smiled big. So it's good. It encourages me. So I'll watch you the whole time, Afton. I just had a thought come to my mind. I just have to write it down. Yeah, Luke chapter 11, we're going to begin about verse 40, uh, 29. Why, why is the dark so scary? Why is darkness so scary? Or you could say, why does every good book that talks about scary things start off, it was a dark and stormy night? Why do the creeps come out at night? I remember my sisters and I, often my, my parents, on Saturday nights, they would go play bingo at the local Catholic church hall. And this is when we were younger, and uh, they would tell us to go to bed at 10 o'clock. They'd get home about 11 o'clock. But sometimes my sister Gina loved to turn on scary movies. It would scare the heck out of us before 10 o'clock. And so my sister Gina, my sister Stephanie and I, we had a plan. At about 10 o'clock, after the movie was over, I would turn the lights on in the living room. My sister Stephanie would turn the lights on up the stairway to the second floor. And my sister Gina would turn the lights on up in the top floor. And then so when everybody was ready in position, all the lights were on, then I would quickly turn the lights out in the living room and run to the stairway where the lights were on. My sister and I, Stephanie, would get ready. She'd turn the lights out and we'd book it up the stairway to the top floor where Gina had the lights on. There she was by the light switch. And the light switch was right in the middle of our rooms. My sister's room was on the right. My, my brother in my room was on the left. And then we'd say, one, two, three, go. We'd turn off the lights. We'd dart into our rooms and jump underneath the covers before the creepy things would grab your ankle and bite it. We'd do that all the time. I don't know why we did it, but we loved it. And we would book through the house because we were terrified, scared to death of the dark. But, you know, the, the older I got, the more I realized I had nothing to worry about. Darkness. It's just Darkness. I don't need to be afraid. I am a man. And as a man, I am not scared of the dark. And I won't let the dark get me. But you know, that's not biblical. Did you know that? Being scared of the dark is not biblical. So in other words, in a sense, here is the title for my message, where I have, don't be afraid of the dark. It's what we're taught. We can handle it. The truth of the matter is, if we are going to be biblically minded, sometimes we need to be very afraid of the dark. So do be afraid of the dark. You may be wondering why. Because isn't a mature person supposed to be able to handle the dark? Well, let's read verses 29 to the end of chapter 11, and then we'll go through this message of why we need to be afraid sometimes of the dark. Verse 29. If you remember last week, we had where Jesus healed a man from a demon. And some people last week accused Jesus of being 
a partaker of Satan's works by being able to cast out the demon, he must be using Satan's ability. And we talked all about that last week. And another person who watched what he did said, hey, show us some more signs. We want to see more of the show. So this picks up to the second group of people that wanted to see more signs. So verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. We're going to stop reading there, and then the rest we'll pick up in a little bit. But if you notice verse 35, I believe verse 35 is sort of the center of this message. He says... Be careful. In other words, you need to really pay attention or else your body may be full of darkness. Be careful of the dark. Be afraid, very afraid of the dark. Why? Well, out of the immediate context, Jesus just healed a man of the demon and they wanted to see more. They weren't content with just this singular exorcism. And so verse 16, it says in Luke 11, you know, so verse 15, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign. They wanted to test him. They just wanted more. Give me more. Give me more. Well, in verse 29 to 32, what we just read, Jesus directs his attention to those who want to see a sign and he makes an extremely offensive remark towards them. He calls them, in verse 29, look what he calls them. Those who want a sign. He calls them evil. You are an evil, evil generation. All they wanted was another sign, and he calls them evil? Their desire to test and not trust Jesus betrays in them a moral darkness that is lurking. Their inability to just trust him and they need more and more is a sign that inside there's something dark. Something that is evil, morally reprehensible about them. It wasn't enough simply to believe. They wanted more. Evil people always want more. What's funny is um, in some ways this is why I try to shy away from that the Holy Spirit, the way you can tell, it's always these amazing things he does. The wow factor of the Holy Spirit. 
sometimes always focusing on the wow factor of the Holy Spirit feeds our dark side. It feeds the dark side, the wanting of more. We're not content with just Jesus. One writer says about this passage, this request for a sign betrays an inner disposition oriented away from the light, away from God's salvific project and toward the realm of darkness whose head is Satan. So he's saying, that's pretty heavy, those who want more really aren't satisfied in what Jesus already provided. So what does it mean really to be evil? If he's calling you an evil generation, what does it mean to be evil? Because am I evil? And then the second, a corollary question is, what does darkness mean in this context? How do we define darkness? From this passage, and really from other New, New Testament pas passages, darkness is common. It's a common theme. It's spoken about a lot by both Jesus and John, specifically the prophet John, or the writer John. It's always contrasted in light of Jesus' light. Jesus is the light, and everything outside of Jesus is in the outer darkness. It's a contrast. So to define darkness, you could say it's a real kingdom. It's a real place. As a real ruler, Satan, it's a real kingdom, according to Colossians. It's populated by rebels, evil morally bankrupt rebels that are under condemnation. They're under God's wrath. That's why Romans 1 says the wrath of God is currently being administered because there's evil people on this earth. That's why even if you look at verse 30 through 32, Jesus talks about how you know people in Nineveh, the queen of the south, which is the queen of Sheba, they're going to rise up and they are going to actually bear witness to the condemnation people deserve who reject Christ. It's a dark passage, actually. It's shocking. So those who are part of the kingdom of darkness will have no excuse because they rejected their only hope, which is Christ. Look how clear John 3, 18 and 19 is. Watch how clear this is. This is one of those passages I don't think we just let soak into us. It says, whoever does not believe, that means whoever rejects the cross, whoever does not accept Christ, whoever does not believe is under condemnation right now, is condemned already. That's a harsh statement. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus is the light. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I often love to tell the story of my first apartment when I got married. I cleaned it up for my wife. I cleaned everything. And I was, two weeks later after our honeymoon, we came back to the apartment. I said, Michelle, you'll love this you love this apartment. I even cleaned the refrigerator. I took over the refrigerator, opened up the refrigerator, and there was 2,000 roaches in it. They just darted out when the light came on, and where, where they went was inside the molding of the fridge. So I got this plastic glove, and I put my finger through that molding, and just they just started coming down my arm. It was, hey, gross. 
But that's kind of morally bankrupt people. We hide in the darkness because the light shines on us. We don't want it. So, God's condemnation is upon those people in the darkness. Let's talk a little bit about the darkness, the physics of darkness and how it works. It's, this, is a, this is one of those strange uh, passages, verse, really verse 33 through 36. Jesus, immediately following his denunciation of the sign-obsessed evil generation, explains why in general why darkness is so bad. That's what verse 33 to 36. I call this a spiritual physics course on darkness. How to understand how it works. From the get-go, Jesus is going to contrast the properties of light and darkness, spiritually speaking. Verse 33, he's kind of talking about our design. Listen to what it says. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. This is the same thing as hiding under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. The idea is that we've been designed to shine. You have been made by the Creator to be a lamp for the world to glorify God through. You've been made to shine. That's why he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under a cellar, under a basket. You haven't been designed to be dark. You've been designed to shine, to show the world your good works. Not to be an evil, corrupt person. And so, when you're full of it, full of light, you're healthy. That's what it's going to go on to say. But when you're not, you're bad. That means you are not fulfilling the purpose for which you've been designed. And so let me kind of give you a contrast between general physics and spiritual physics. General physics is like this. Naturally, go ahead and hit it. When light shines, it comes from the outside in. I see the lamp, and the lamp shines in me. So the reason I can see is because the light out here is reflecting in me. It's general physics. The reason you can see a flower is because the light from the sun is reflecting it on your eyes. That's, we all know that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. In verse 34 to 35, he says spiritual sight is first determined by what's inside of you. And then it's projected out. So it comes from the inside, and then it's projected to the outside. Look at verse 34 to 36. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of life. What does that mean, your eye is healthy? Well, he gives more clues when he keeps going. But when it's bad, it means it's seeing wrongly. Your body is full of darkness. So the reason why your eye's healthy is because you're full of light. The reason why your eye's bad or it's not working correctly is because you are full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So what he's saying is he's saying first examine what's inside because that determines what you see outside. A healthy eye comes from a person who's first full of light. A bad eye comes from a person who's first full of darkness. Here's how Jesus, Jesus says this a couple other ways. Look at Mark. Here's what he says in Mark 7. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. In other words, he's talking about eating food. This time he says, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Let's talk about kosher laws. You can't eat bacon because it's going to defile you to a Jew. Good, crispy, sizzling bacon. It's going to make you evil. No, Jesus is like, no, no, no. What makes you evil is what's already in here. 
Watch now what, what Titus says. Titus says the same thing. To the pure, the person who's lit on the inside, who's bright, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, that means those who are full of darkness, nothing's pure. But both their minds and their consciences, those, that means the things that they know they should be doing, they don't do. They're defiled. It starts from the inside. I'll, now let's bring this even down to, you, you guys understand this more than you know. For instance, did you hear on Friday that more email scandal came out from Hillary Clinton? Did you hear that? Now how you perceive that depends on who you're going to vote for. Did you know that? How you read that information depends on who you vote for, want to vote for. If you are a Trumper, yeah! <laughs> yeah, get her! If you're a Clinton fan, you're like, how dare Comey do that? That information, I could just say that singular information, even by saying that information, some of you get nervous. Oh, he's using politics. All I'm just saying is more possible emails came out. Some of you are excited. Some of you are furious. And it all depends upon how you see in the inside first. I'll give you another perfect example. Yesterday at noon, there was a big game, high-profile game on in the state of Michigan, the Spartans versus the Wolverines. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't get it on TV, so I turned on the radio. I turned on 106.9, the Wolverine station, with Dan Deerdorf and Jim Brandstander, the worst. I'm sorry, Lee, I can't stand it. Jim Brandstander, they run over the goal line, Ten minutes later, touchdown! I just scored a touchdown. Jim, they scored a touchdown ten minutes ago. You just got it. Anyhow, I'm sorry. That drives me crazy. But then you turned it on 107.3, and it's Michigan State. If you hear from those radio, it's like you're listening to a completely different game. On the Michigan radio station, it's like excitement all the time, upbeat, and the MSU's, well, oh, oh. am I listening to the same game? It's a different game. It all depends on perspective you start from. This is what this is sort of talking about, but let's talk about it on a spiritual level. If you are full of, here's, here's the general principle, is what I think Jesus is saying. General principle, how you see, how you see is determined by what you are. So be careful. Are you light? Or are you a dark rebel? If you are full of light, if you are full of light, Jesus will mean everything to you. Studying Scripture, worshiping with His church, His people, loving those in your midst will become something you want to do. Even temptation, when it's flashed before you, will not be that tempting. Did you know Jesus could hang out with prostitutes and not lust? Because he was the light. And so when he saw a prostitute, he didn't see an object. He didn't see a commodity to have. He saw a human being made in his image that he created that he desperately wanted saved. Because he's full of light. So how he perceives something is completely different how the darkness perceives it. But if you are full of darkness, you will see the world and the things of God completely different. Scripture will become a burden for you. 
The church seems pointless. Why, do, why go to church? All right, I'll go. But why? I, did, I don't understand. People around you will always seem to be a pain in the neck. You'll love that phrase. Life was, would be, is great if it weren't for people. If it weren't for people. Jesus loves people. Darkness does not. Because they are a hindrance to what you want. And everything, everything will be a temptation to you. Everything. That's what it means in Titus. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, all things are defiled. Why? Here's a question for you. Why do Muslim women have to wear burqas? Because they're holy? No. It's exactly the opposite. It's because Muslim men are perverted. You're like, how dare you say that? Do some research on the men that flew their planes into the 9-11 towers. You'd be very shocked. You'd be very shocked at their porn problems. It's interesting, when men get really upset with the way women dress, it's usually because they probably have a problem. It's weird. But to the pure, all things are pure. To the dark and defiled, you've got to hide everything. So I can't handle it. So the question is, which is true of you? And the answer is of utmost importance. Are you full of light or are you full of darkness? Because remember, those who are dark are sitting under the present condemnation of God. That's scary. It is his mercy and his mercy alone that's keeping you alive. So what's in you? Well, you might say, I don't know. Is there any way to tell? I believe what the next passage, it kind of, it's interesting in the Greek, all of your passages are linked together. There's no headings. And so here Jesus is talking about the evil generation. He talks about darkness. And then all of a sudden, he's going to have a discussion with the evil people, the Pharisees and the lawyers. And so what we're going to learn from the Pharisees and lawyers are what I'm going to say, three telltale signs, darkness is in you. You're going to see it's in them. And the reason why we need, I think, to look at this is because darkness as darkness tries not to be seen. But you can tell when it's at work. It behaves in three specific ways. As it is true in the physical realm, darkness behaves in a certain way. It's the same way in the spiritual realm. And so we are going to look at what I'm going to call the dark riders. If you like Lord of the Rings, the dark riders of the New Testament of the Pharisees. They're the dark riders. The lawyers. And it begins in a very nice setting. Look at verse 37. This is how the, really this is a confrontation, a heavy-duty confrontation between Jesus and the dark riders. This is bad, but it's in a setting that seems kind of nice. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Isn't that nice? So Jesus was speaking in the crowds. A Pharisee comes, how would you like to come dine at my house? And that word dine is, let's have a nice candlelight dinner. Doesn't turn out to be a candlelight dinner. Come and dine with me. So he went and he reclined at the table. So things are going to be really nice. But it gets bad. In fact, I would have loved to have been there. So what we're going to learn is he's going to confront them in three areas of their life. So first of all, the first telltale sign, I'll give you the telltale sign and I'll show you how it happens and explain it, how it happens to us. First telltale sign, darkness 
if it's in you, it will always hide what lies beneath the surface. That's the point of darkness. It hides everything about who you really are by putting on a front. Look at verse 38, 41. 38, the Pharisees, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. See, ceremonially, before you sit down, it's not necessarily because of germs. It's ceremonial washing. You're supposed to wash your hands. And Jesus didn't. He just went right to the meal. And man, this Pharisee did not like it. It says he was astonished. Like, how dare him? Didn't wash. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, darkness. You fools, did he who, not, who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So the context was the socially constructed institution of ceremonial washing hands, but Jesus didn't. How dare him? How dare him? They wash their hands out of custom, out of public appearance. Jesus decided to provoke them by not. He did it purposely. I think Jesus loved to provoke people. He'd be the kind of guy that would wear shorts and sandals to preach today. He'd make you mad. He's wearing shorts, sandals, and a t-shirt? Yeah, he wants to see how you respond. How you responding? What's really down there? I'm not going to wash my hands. Let's see what's really hidden. And the Pharisee got mad. Whoa, he's getting mad. He wanted to see where was this Pharisee trusting? Was he trusting in a relationship or a ritual? And it turns out, ritual. He was more concerned about how he looked in true inward righteousness. And as the commentator Green writes, their concern, the Pharisees' concern for ritual purity overlooked the need for integrity between one's inside constitution and one's outside public behavior. They were two-faced. That's their problem. Darkness hides who you really are. You don't want people to really know you. Or as another writer says, the Pharisees were more concerned with what one does than who one is. That's a biggie. That's a big one. So darkness hides what someone really is. Are you the same person at church than you are at home? Are you the same person a minute before you park in your car than that minute you're outside of the car shaking hands? Get out of the car, you dumb kid. Well, hello. God is great all the time. <laughs> you rotten kids. Shut up at church. Hi. Are we the same person? It's like the little girl when she asked her mom, Mom, why are you so nice when you're talking on the phone, but once you hang up, all you do is yell? That doesn't hit close to home to any moms here, does it? On the French Riviera, I read this interesting story. In the French Riviera, it's such an important status symbol to have a balcony on an apartment that it is quite common to see balconies painted on the walls of apartment houses. Some even paint wet laundry hanging on the clothesline just to give a touch of reality. 
This is what a dark heart tries to do. Paint a facade just to give a touch of reality. Actually, I hate to admit this. I was sitting there while they were singing and flashing in my mind is my, you know, my daughter's getting married next Saturday. I can't believe it. Sorry, Ginger, she's sitting back there. No clapping, boy, this is not a good occasion. But I was thinking, I can remember, I remember having a conversation with her. She's going through a tough time. And I, what's hard in our culture, especially in seventh and eighth grade, about ninth grade, is there's this popularity contest with girls, the mean girl syndrome, you know? And, 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 I was, and I think she was going through a tough time. We were talking out, and I like to plant in my front yard. I like a garden. And I was telling her, I just said, Ginger, you know the difference between a perennial and an annual? A perennial flower, you plant it about May, April. They don't have a flower instantaneously. But did you know about middle of August, it dies? Never comes back up again. It's dead. It's just an annual, one year. You know a perennial, you plant it, and the first year it might not have a lot of flowers. But those roots go deep, and in a winter they gain strength. So the next spring they start coming up with flowers. Next winter, those roots get even deeper and stronger. The next spring they get abundance of flowers. I was saying, Ginger, I want you to be a perennial, not an annual. And she is, praise the Lord, where she's a stronger, more beautiful person because what's inside is what matters. Darkness just wants to put on a perennial, an annual facade. It dies quickly in, in adversity. Second telltale sign. Sorry, Ginger, I will pay you 20 bucks for using an illustration about you as a no, don't worry about it. I paid enough for you. Let's go. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Second telltale sign. Darkness loses focus on what really matters in life. It loses focus. It's every, the, the important stuff gets clouded, and you only see myopically because you're only consumed with yourself. Darkness loses focus. Verse 42 and 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint. It's a spice and rue and every herb. And neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So verse 42 and 43, two things are happening here. Number one, the Pharisees are tithing. And tithing's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But their religious exactness and their detailed adherence to rituals blinding them from the things that are truly important. Love of other people. And God. But boy, they're tithing exactly right. They're doing the exact right thing. And then the second way that they're described is they love the intention to themselves. They want to be seen in the synagogue. Isn't a synagogue a place for God to be seen and loved? But they would rather be seen. And so the second point is, is that darkness, it's so obsessed with itself, it can't properly evaluate how it's being projected. It's getting lost in the fog. 
It's, uh, I'll give you a perfect illustration of this. And maybe this is how you can evaluate it for yourself. In my counseling sessions, especially with men, I, I have this sheet. It's an analogy. And it's to help, help people deal with this problematic aspect of a selfish, inward person. And so the, I was thinking, what would be a good metaphor to describe the difference between somebody that's selfish, like inward, only concerned with self, consumed with self, and somebody that is other-centered? And I said, okay, here it is. Which one are you? Are, a, are you a black hole or are you a bright sun? And this makes all the difference in the world. What is the difference between a black hole and a bright sun? A black hole is a region of space, as astronomers say, having a gravitational field so intense that no matter or radiation can escape, so it sucks everything in, kind of like a whirlpool. But what it's sucking in isn't just light, it's sucking in galaxies. It's huge. In fact, people use this term black hole to mean a place where people or things, especially money, disappears without a trace. It gets lost in the hole. So a black hole sucks in all life around it and destroys them. Have you ever met somebody like that? Everything's about them. The conversations are always about them. Whenever you have an opinion, theirs must matter. Whenever you watch a TV show, theirs must be on. When you ever talk about important issues, they always have the last word. They're a black hole. Nobody else matters but them. Like darkness. A bright sun, however, gives light. The reason we can grow plants and trees that flourish is because the sun sends light and life. Some fathers are like that. Some mothers are like that, where they give of themselves to make everybody else great, and they don't care about themselves. Darkness loves self, but light radiates to others. You can tell a person's a bright light because when people are around them, they become better people. They don't focus on the small things. They focus on the heart. You can tell somebody's a black hole because nobody wants to be around them for too long. And often they're lonely people. Third telltale sign. Darkness, and this is a, this is a bad one. Darkness spreads. It spreads. Listen to verse 44 to 52. Verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. We're going to get into that in a second. And then it goes on. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, and saying these things, you insult us. <laughs> I think Jesus enjoyed that. It's such a powerful weapon. You insulted me. So you rule the world? Is that, that's really what you're saying. You rule the world. You insult us. And he said, woe to you, lawyers. And that's, that's really a problem with our world. Everybody's insulted. We can't insult anybody. Can't make fun of anybody. We've got to make sure everybody's happy. We've got to have political correctness so nobody's ever mad. Nobody ever be mad. They even want to take away Chief Wahoo. Boy, the old Indian. He's an offense. Verse 46, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build your tomb, their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them whom you will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of the knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who are trying to enter. See, so darkness spreads. The first little analogy is kind of very damning. Verse 44, and this is what made him so ticked off. He says, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over you without even realizing it. This is shocking. Because it's an indictment. In Jewish law, if you walked over an unmarked grave, you became ceremonial unclean without realizing it. So what that means is if you walked over a grave site and somebody said, hey, you just walked over a grave, you couldn't worship God. You were considered unclean. You had to go to the priest to get purified. And you really didn't do anything wrong. God could not be approached because you were unclean. Jesus is saying that there are some people who are like unmarked graves. They have a way of spreading their darkness to others, making them just as dark. Wow, that's an indictment. While they think they are pure and their teaching is right, is actually causing people to stumble and fall before God. Look at verse 52, same idea. Verse 52, he's talking to the lawyers. You have Pharisees who were, their, they did, were experts in religious ritual. Lawyers were experts in specific law, Old Testament law. And so 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. They are spreading the darkness. Morris writes, he's a commentator, instead of opening up the treasures of knowledge, the dark lawyers closed them fast. They turn the Bible into a book of obscurities, a bundle of riddles which only the experts could understand. They neither entered nor allowed others to enter. They were ordinary people on their way to knowledge of God until these teachers turned them away. They spread the darkness. I'll be honest with you, one of the main reasons I'm in ministry, the reason why I'm a pastor, is because I want people to be excited about God and the truth when they're young. Rather than being bored to tears, confused or misinformed like I was when I was a teenager, growing up, I had some of the worst ministers and teachers of the Bible you could ever imagine. They were horrible. And you might be saying I'm slandering them. I am not slandering. I had one guy, Father Callahan. Here's what he said is the height of religion. I could, my dad and my mom will attest to this. My sisters, here's what he say. This is when you... He'd say it like this, too, so it sounded like he knows what he's talking about. Do you want to be a spiritual person? You have to learn. And he'd say it just like this. You have to learn to think about what you're thinking about. What you're thinking about. And when you do, you will reach the height of heaven. Let us pray. (laughs) 
My dad would drive us home in a car saying, what was that all of? What was that? It's like obscurity. You've met obscure people. They use these big words that mean nothing, but they sound intelligent. Today, we're going to talk about the propitiation of the uh, virtual propitiational sacrificial atoning first uh, fruits of the harvest of the new moon. Huh? What did he talk about? I don't know, but man, it sounded good. It sounded holy. That's what I grew up in. I grew up in that. I got to tell you, the preaching would be dead, cold, and dry, and irrelevant, and it made God heavy, scary, and a horrible burden. I didn't want him. I hated church. I absolutely hated it. And the idea of studying and learning about God is the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> These people who are studying the Bible seem so angry. Why were they so angry all the time? I just read the Word of God, and it says you are doomed. <laughs> Like, I want out of here. Man, I scared to take the holy water. I thought I'd burn. I don't know. I was scared to death of going to church. And then I learned about my Jesus, and he's amazing. Every Sunday felt like a funeral service. When church was over, I felt like I was being released out of prison. I think one of the biggest roadblocks for the cause of Christ are people, teachers, who claim to know Christ but actually don't have a clue who he is. Some of these people go to the ministry, and I'm convinced that Satan's best weapon to stop truth from spreading. Dark people who believe they have the light are put into positions of power, and they just spread darkness. This summer I read a book that said this. This is an amazing statement. This is amazing. If you can let this sink in, it's so freeing. Most people who don't believe in God, that means atheists and agnostics, most people who don't believe in God are disbelieving in a God that doesn't actually exist. That's powerful. He goes on to say, so the task of evangelism is to start teaching people and getting them excited about the God that actually does exist. Do you know God hates rock music? He hates having fun. He wants us to be miserable. God wants people to suffer and rot in hell. Does he really? Does he really? Then why do we get so excited about when, oh, they preached about hell. God weeps. When you talk about God to others, what do they hear? Do you want them to hear about a dark, angry God of war? who delights in pulverizing people? Do they hear about a kind God of mercy who said, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. The God you talk about, the God you talk about is a reflection of the God who lives inside of you. Is he dark or is he light? Is he good news or bad news? Is God going to beat you or was God beaten for you? So the question is, you have to ask yourself, am I a dark messenger? Am I spreading darkness to others? Well, if you are, you need to be warned one more time. Listen to Jesus in 11.32, Luke 11.32. He says something very strange, and this is, I think, what really made people mad. He said, the men of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah's here. 
If you know anything about the story of Jonah and Nineveh, Nineveh was a dark place. If you read the book of Nahum, it calls the people of Nineveh bloody, a bloody city, and they deserve to have filth thrown at them. That's what it says in Nahum, meaning people in Nineveh are so bad, they are known as a bloody city because what they'd do is when they'd capture people, they'd drag them back to their land on fish hooks in the nose or in the back, and they'd hang them on the walls and slaughter them. They were wicked people. But God took this guy Jonah, put him, told him to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go, so he, he got on a boat, tried to get away. God had a storm come, so Jonah jumped in, and you know the story. A giant fish swallowed him, and he was in the belly for three days, was spit out at Nineveh, probably came out all gooey, went to Nineveh, downtown Nineveh, had the worst sermon ever. You know what? Forty days, if you don't repent, you're going to die. That's all he said. And you know what the Ninevites did? They called for a fast, and they repented. The word repent means they left the darkness and they turned towards the light of truth. If you are dark, if you find yourself to be a person who hides, you're double-minded, you're, you're different at home than you are at church, you're always put on a false front. Maybe you're a person who cares about just you while you ignore everybody else, or maybe you spread hate and judgment, even false truths. If that's you, you only have one choice. Come to the light. Repent. Turn. Come to Christ. Because if you don't, these wicked, bloody men of Nineveh are going to be more righteous than you because you know the truth of the gospel. You know the greatest message ever given. And you have no excuse. So are you dark or are you light? It's for you to decide. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you, God, that... Um, I thank you, Lord, for this church that is willing to hear truth, is willing to accept truth and evaluate themselves based on truth. I pray if there is somebody in here that honestly has a dark heart, I pray that, God, you'd expose it and they would be drawn to the light. I pray for those who love the rule over other people, love to always have their opinion be right, love to always shout other people down or criticize. I pray that you expose their darkness and help them fall in love with you instead. Thank you for this day, God. In Jesus' name we pray.